when we turn in genuine repentance to Him, He always responds in grace. God always welcomes home the prodigal who's willing to leave his sin and return home to the Father. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his current series with part 12 of War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. We've explored the source of conflicts and sinful desires, the three practical steps toward resolving them, and how pride and conflict are directly related. Well, as Tom examines today, how you genuinely treat and address your sin is vital to God. You'll learn the three components of genuine repentance and the rich promises of restored fellowship. Open your Bible now and let's join Tom Pennington on The Word Unleashed. So James is saying to all of us, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's saying you have dirty hands and divided hearts. Now notice that this is not a reference to our need of God's cleansing. That's true. We do need God's cleansing, but that's not what he's saying here. He's saying we need to clean up ourselves. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. By the way, James uses sinners here, a term usually reserved for unbelievers, but he uses it here because it describes the reality that although we have been forgiven, although we have been delivered from the wrath of God, we are still guilty of sinful actions against God. We're sinners. And he says, cleanse your hands. Hands is an obvious reference to our deeds, to our actions, to our behavior. So to clean our hands means we must repent of, we must turn from, we must leave all behavior that's against God's character and his law. In the context of James 4, the specific sins that James is referring to are arguing, fighting, living for sinful pleasure. He says, cleanse your hands. James adds, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Hearts, of course, refers to our thoughts, our attitudes, our affections, those things going on inside of us. And he calls us double-minded. Double-minded refers to someone who is torn between two, someone who is torn between his love for the world and his love for Christ. So to purify a double-minded heart means that we must cleanse ourselves from all those sinful thoughts, all those sinful desires and attitudes that stand opposed to Christ. Again, in the context of James 4, James is urging us to repent of our divided allegiance, of our spiritual adultery, of our love for the world, or to put it as Jeremiah does, from worshiping the idols of our hearts. But the question that comes to my mind, it came to my mind when I was studying this, and I'm sure it comes to yours, is, great, I understand this is important. We need to turn from sin, but how do we do that? How do you cleanse yourself of external behavior? How do you purify your heart of sinful thoughts and divided loyalty? Well, it's very simple. You cleanse your hands from sinful deeds by refusing to carry out those deeds. You clean your heart by refusing to let your mind dwell on ungodly things. Let me show you this in 
the context of the Old Testament. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, here Isaiah is castigating God's people, of Judah, for their sin. Verse 15, he says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. How? Well, he goes on to explain. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. This is what it means to cleanse our hands. It means to let go of our sin and get on the path of obedience. What about the heart? Well, turn to Jeremiah chapter 4. We have this explained for us as well, Jeremiah 4. Again, Jeremiah talking to the people of Israel, and particularly to Judah. He says in verse 14 of Jeremiah 4, Wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved. What does that mean? Well, he defines it in the second half of the verse. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? He says, listen, get rid of those evil thoughts. Don't allow them in your head. But if you're like me, you're still left wondering exactly how that happens, how that fleshes out in real life. I'm thankful for Peter because Peter makes it very clear for us. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 22. Here's how it happens. He says, you have purified your souls. Verse 22. You've purified your souls. How, Peter? In obedience to to the truth. Here's how you cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. You turn from what you know to be sin and you try to obey God. You get on the path of obedience. You make a commitment to obey God. You purify your soul in obedience to the truth. So, the first component of repentance is turning your heart back to God. The second is turning from all known sin. The third element of repentance is found in verse 9. Cultivate godly sorrow. Cultivate godly sorrow. Notice what James says. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, folks, this doesn't mean that we as Christians should walk around gloomy and glum all the time. It doesn't mean that laughter is sinful. In fact, Psalm 126, verse 2 says, Our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with joyful shouting. Why? Then they will say among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. We laugh and we shout and we're filled with joy because of all that God has done. There's nothing wrong with that. But here's what James is saying. To paraphrase Solomon, there is a time to laugh and there is a time to weep. It's like Jesus' words in Luke 6, verse 25. Jesus said, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. You see, what both Jesus and James are warning about is the kind of superficial happiness and laughter and joy that still tolerates sin in the life. Tasker in his commentary says, when a Christian compromises with the world and is double-minded, it is a sure sign that his sense of the gravity of sin has become blunted. 
James is saying, listen, when we've been tolerating sin in our lives, it's not a time for lightheartedness. Genuine repentance cuts deep. Notice the words he uses. Verse 9, be miserable. He's calling for a state of feeling miserable and wretched. A good translation of it would be this. Be devastated with shame over your sin. Mourn. This word mourn refers to a deep kind of inner grief. Weep. This word describes the sort of violent wails that often accompany funerals in the Middle East, both in the ancient world and even recently. We've seen them on the screens of our televisions as they mourn and wail over the loss of a loved one. You see, together, these terms speak of a broken heart. The sad thing is, some professing Christians are so out of touch with their true spiritual condition that they're laughing when they ought to be weeping. And so James adds in verse 9, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now folks, let's be honest with ourselves. We are influenced by the culture in which we live. And we live in an instant society. We want it and we want it now. So when it's time for us to weep over our sin before God, we want to weep for two minutes and then get up and be filled with joy. But when God calls his sinning people to himself, it always involves a deep sorrow for sin. Repentance is not a frivolous, I'm sorry God, I'm on my way. Let me show you what it looks like. Turn back to the prophet Joel. In Joel's prophecy, he's telling the people that judgment is coming, a plague is coming in chapter 2. But in the middle of prophesying this judgment, notice what he says in Joel 2 verse 12. He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, even while I'm prophesying judgment, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and tear your heart and not your garments. In the ancient world, a sign that you were weeping over some devastating event in your life was to tear your outer garment so people knew. The Lord says, I'm not interested in your outer garment. Tear your heart before me. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. That's what we're to do. We're to be filled with fasting and mourning and weeping, and we're to tear our hearts, as it were, before God. This is so far from where our culture is. The truth is, Scripture says that every sinner, every sinner without exception, will eventually mourn his sin. It will either be now or it will be when it's too late, when God has already begun to display his wrath. It's amazing to me how unbelievers laugh about their sin and are often so proud of it. When I was a seminary student, I worked in the shipyards every summer as an electrician, wiring 75-foot steel hull boats down in, off the coast of Mobile. And I was always struck by the fact that there were a number of times, I can remember two occasions particularly, and sure there were more, but I remember these two vividly. When I talked with two men who were definitely not believers about their need for Christ, and their response was to laugh about it, to say, yeah, I know, I know I'm a sinner, and I know 
that uh, my future doesn't look very good, but you know, they'd make some joke about having a good time in hell as if it were sort of the ultimate party. Somehow, those men had forgotten what Jesus describes, a place of eternal torment where there is wailing and grinding of teeth, where the fire is never quenched. Yet sadly, even though we know that, even Christians can become lighthearted about their sin. I've had people come up to me and say things like this. Yeah, I know the, or not come up to me, it's when I've been talking with them. They'll say, yeah, I know the adulterous relationship I'm involved in is sinful, but God will forgive me. Listen, that's a long way from being miserable and mourning and weeping about your sin. Douglas Moo writes, a carefree, devil-may-care attitude is typical of those who are friends of the world. They live the hedonist philosophy, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, a worldview that ignores the terrifying reality of God's judgment. But even the committed Christian can slip into a casual attitude towards sin, perhaps presuming too much on God's forgiving and merciful nature. James' words in this passage directly counter any such attitude. He wants us to see sin for what it is, a serious breach in our relationship with a loving Heavenly Father, a breach that, if not healed, can lead to both temporal and spiritual disaster. Contrast a casual attitude towards sin with the kind of true repentance Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn there with me for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In verse 8, he says, I wrote you a letter and it made you sorrowful. He says, but I'm glad, verse 9, because it made you sorrowful to repentance. Verse 10, he says, there are two kinds of sorrow about sin. There's one that isn't true repentance, just being sorry for the trouble it causes, that you got caught, whatever. And then there's this true godly sorrow. And let me tell you what godly sorrow looks like, verse 11. Here it is. Here's what true biblical repentance produced in godly sorrow looks like. For behold, what earnestness, what eagerness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. When there's true repentance, there's an eagerness to deal with it. What vindication of yourselves. You want to set the stigma of sin that's been attached to you right. You want to deal with it. What indignation. This is a word for anger. Righteous anger, not against others, but against us and our own sin. What fear? True repentance produces a genuine fear of God who holds our breath in his hands. What longing? This word longing describes the intense desire for a relationship. What zeal? This is a word for jealousy. What jealousy? What avenging of wrong? It doesn't mean carrying out vengeance on others. It means dealing with sin, being absolutely ruthless in our dealing with the sin in our lives. That's what true repentance looks like. That's what godly sorrow looks like. Now here's the question. How can we cultivate that kind of godly sorrow in our hearts? Well, very briefly, there are a couple of things we can do. First of all, contemplate God's goodness. Romans chapter 2, there Paul tells us in verse 4 that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. Contemplate the goodness of God to you And if you really think about it and you dwell on it and your response to him, it will drive you to a godly sorrow over your sin. Secondly, if you want to cultivate a godly sorrow, come to a full understanding of who God is and his holiness. You remember in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees God for all that he is and his great holiness. And how does he respond? Woe is me, 
for I am undone, for my eyes have what? Seen the king. You want to cultivate a godly sorrow about your sin, look at God's goodness, look at God's holiness, and finally, look at your own sinfulness. Come to a full understanding of your own sinfulness through the word of God. Several passages drive this point home that the word of God leads us to appreciate our sinfulness for what it is. In Acts 2, you remember Peter preaches, and after he's done preaching, it says, when they had heard this, when they heard his sermon, when they heard the word of God taught, what happened? They were pierced to the heart. My prayer is that if you're living in a pattern of unrepentant sin, that the word of God would pierce you to the heart, make you appreciate your true condition before God. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, Paul says, my letter filled you with godly sorrow. The word of God produces that in us. Now, go back to James chapter 4. James ends this paragraph in verse 10 with a summary command that takes us back to verse 6. Notice verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. You see, if God gives grace to the humble, then the way to experience God's grace is to humble ourselves before him. And as we've seen this morning... The way to humble ourselves is to repent, to turn to God, to turn from our sin, and to cultivate godly sorrow for sin. It's to recognize our spiritual poverty and our desperate need of God's grace. But when I hear that, my response is what yours should be as well. How can we repent like that? You see, even our repentance needs to be repented of. So here's the irony, folks. Even Genuine repentance is a gift of grace. Acts 11, verse 18, God has granted repentance. You see, that's what the promise in verse 10 means. Look at verse 10 again. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. In context, God's promise that he will exalt us or lift us up refers back to the promise of grace in verse 6. In other words, he will exalt you means he will give you the grace he promised if you will humble yourself in repentance. George Stulock in his commentary puts it this way. He says, James is telling us to expect that God will come near to forgive sin, to restore joy, and to strengthen the repentant sinner to live in purity and righteousness. He will exalt you if you'll humble yourself. What's the solution to quarreling and fighting? It's the same solution as every other sin. It's God's grace. And God gives it to the one who humbles his heart before him in genuine repentance. But here's the really amazing part. Don't miss this. God always responds to genuine repentance with grace. There's so many places where this is clear. I love Isaiah 55. You remember We're told there, let the unrighteous man turn from his ways and the wicked man from his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord, for he will, what, abundantly pardon. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I think, wait a minute, how can God do that? Well, it's as if God anticipated that response because he says, let me tell you, the next verse, even as the heaven is high above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is God. This is our God. When we turn in genuine repentance to him, he always responds in grace. 
God always welcomes home the prodigal who's willing to leave his sin and return home to the Father. My favorite story of such grace, I've shared with you, I believe, once before, but I can't resist the occasion to do it again. It's in Max Lucado's book, No Wonder They Call Him the Savior. Max tells the story in that book of a Brazilian girl named Christina. Listen to her story. Christina wanted to see the world. Discontent with a home having only a pallet on the floor, a wash basin, and a wood-burning stove, she dreamed of a better life in the city. One morning, she slipped away, breaking her mother's heart. Knowing what life on the streets would be like for her young, attractive daughter, Maria hurriedly packed to go find her. On her way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore to get one last thing, pictures. She sat in the photograph booth, closed the curtain, and spent all she could on pictures of herself. With her purse full of small black and white photos, she boarded the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were before unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began her search. Bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place with the reputation for streetwalkers or prostitutes. She went to them all. And at each place, she left her picture, taped on a bathroom mirror, tacked to a hotel bulletin board, fastened to a corner phone booth. And on the back of each photo, she wrote a note. It wasn't too long before both the money and the pictures ran out and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to its small village. It was a few weeks later that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for her secure pallet. Yet the little village was, in too many ways, too far away. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned, and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. Written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you've done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. You see, like Christina and like the prodigal, the only hope for us is when we are willing to leave our sin and go home. Home to God. Maybe today you need to come to your senses. You need to leave the sin that you have enjoyed for so long and that has punished you so severely with its enslaving power and turn toward God and go home in genuine repentance. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes our current series, War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. Tom will have a new series for you on our next program, and we do hope you'll join us then on The Word Unleashed. But before we leave you today, here's Tom with some closing thoughts. Well, Bill, the only 
right way to respond to all we've learned from James 4 and these 10 magnificent verses is to humble ourselves before God. So let me encourage you to do that even today, each of us. As you have listened to this series and you've learned along with us the reality of our response to one another and to God, let me encourage you to go to God, humble yourself before Him, ask God through His Word and His Spirit to bring true conviction to your heart, to bring true repentance as we've learned about it, to bring then forgiveness and true spiritual wholeness. God can produce that in us. May we be open to that as we seek His face. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.